Welcome to episode 28 of our podcast, That's So Second Millennium. I'm Bill Schmidt, and I'm pleased to be in conversation with Dr. Paul Giesting, uh, my friend who holds a PhD in uh, geology, uh, and we're spending a, a good amount of time on that uh, specific field of knowledge of Paul's, but always in a very interesting and relevant context, uh, combining insights into science, religion, the philosophy of science, and how they've all been playing out both past, present, and future. Um, and uh, we've been talking about the, the past uh, and the geological uh, evidence uh, found in the past, especially in the last episode, Paul, we were talking about um, relative dating of uh, fossils and uh, of um, rock strata, and uh, uh, it was a very interesting kind of uh, metaphor for discussing uh, what uh, nowadays would be uh, the simple maxim, everything's relative, uh, and, uh, uh, because everything's connected to everything else, but in a very, uh, uh, not simplistic way, but uh, according to the uh, reason and insights of that time. Uh, now, I think we can move on to um, uh, somewhat more, dare I say, uh, sophisticated uh, form of uh, analysis, uh, both geological and otherwise, um, more uh, uh, absolute uh, uh, dating and uh, uh, reference to more absolute uh, facts. Uh, please, uh, please take, take the story on from there. Well, yeah, that's the uh, that's the great one, yet another side of that great 20th century physics revolution. You know, the discovery of radioactivity, and then the harnessing of radioactivity to do all sorts of uh, interesting things. And of course, radioactivity is a manifestation of quantum physics. Yeah. So, in geology, and of course, there's you know when you study the structure of minerals, you're dealing with quantum physics as well. There's all sorts of chemistry, uh, chemical tools you know, limitless number of chemical tools that have come out of the uh, quantum physics revolution that we use in the geosciences, as well as, you know, every other form of chemistry, biology, and so forth. But what's really, you know, at issue right now is, of course, the question of radioactivity. And, of course, nearly all of us learn sometime between 7th and 12th grade, at least have heard of radioactivity and the concept of half-life, right? Yeah. There have even been video games named Half-Life with memories. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, so what's a half-life? Hey, Bill, what's a half-life? What, is that, what does that concept mean? It's just a very long period of time, but at least it's more measurable as, as, a, as, a, as an insight into uh, radioactivity and its uh, lifespan. Uh, but other than that, I don't really have an idea of how to define okay. it. Okay. All right. So that, that, this has been your man on the street talking about... <laughs> hey. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So, so a half-life uh, is, and and this is used in in fields outside of radioactivity, but this is sort of it's definitely its classic uh, its classic application is. <clears throat> so you have a sample of atoms, and the point is that you have no idea which atoms are going to decay. In fact, that's the whole foundation of Schrodinger's cat, right? Is that there is some, that, that box, you know, hypothetically is being 
controlled by some quantum process like the decay of a single atom that, you know, would be, you know, then the radiation from that would go into a multiplier, cut this, you know, then this these Rube Goldberg machine that would cut a cord and expose the, uh, expose the cat to some sort of poison and kill the cat. And you don't know whether that's happened or not until it happens, right? Until right. you check the box, you open the box, and until you open the box from your perspective, the quant the wave the wave function that describes the cat is in this superposition of live and dead states because the atom is in the superposition of decayed and undecayed states. Whoa, okay. that's way too much quantum physics. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's dial it down and make it simpler. I have a slab of uranium. Let's hopefully make it a subcritical slab of uranium, something like yes, small. Yeah. yeah. We have, we have I think if you have a slab of uranium the size of a dime, you're below criticality, I think. Okay. Yeah, um, I hope so. Uh -huh. If you make it nice and flat and thin like a dime, you, you, you give yourself a better chance. So okay. we have a dime that's made of uranium, and you ask the question, and how long will it take for half of these uranium atoms to decay and turn into whatever the next thing down the chain is, which is different, actually, for different isotopes? Um, if it's if it's hypothetically pure uranium 238 and gosh this is almost unacceptable i can't remember for certain whether the first thing uranium 238 does is an alpha or beta decay i'm sorry oh. listeners i failed you i did it. <laughs> my phd is on uranium it's it's on uranium geochemistry so i actually don't care what the decay chain is i care about what uranium does in solution and then that sort of thing yeah fair enough that was the point. Nevertheless, it is extremely embarrassing that I don't remember that all the time. <laughs> right. I can at least tell you that if it emitted a beta particle, which I'm pretty sure is not the right answer, it would turn into an isotope of neptunium, neptunium-238, in fact, it would have mm -hmm. to be. And if it emits an alpha particle, it would turn into, well, I'm pretty sure it's thorium-234. It would, it would mm -hmm. lose four mass units, it would lose two protons, and it would go, so it would go two steps down the periodic table to thorium. I'm pretty Interesting. sure that's what Okay. Um, so the period of time that it takes half of the U-238 to do that is called its half-life. Mm -hmm. So if you waited, I see. however many hundred million years that is, Indeed. that the billions, gosh, geez, Bill, mm -hmm. I'm really sort of exposing myself here. Um, <laughs> that's all right. I, I think it's, it, I think it's something sort of, Officially close to the age of the Earth, um, that's not necessarily significant. Let's say it's three and a half billion years. It's not, but let's say it's that. If you waited three and a half billion years, half of the atoms of uranium in this dime would have turned into thorium atoms. Okay. And if you waited another, let's make this even more ridiculous, if you waited another three and a half billion years, half of those atoms that were remaining would have turned into thorium atoms. So no matter how big your sample uranium is, half of it's going to decay. Okay. So that's, that's the half-life concept. Nice. Yeah. So if you take that and apply, you know, first your calculus to that, you then come up with, you can come up with the schemes that we use to measure uh, radioactive decay and use it to date rocks, which gives us absolute numbers of years because we can count, you know, so it's a uh, <laughs> a a dime's worth of uranium. Let's see, a mole <laughs> of uranium two thirty eight would be two hundred thirty eight grams. And a, a, uranium is dense, but it's not that dense. 
So uh-huh. let's say let's say we're dealing with 10 millimoles of it doesn't matter. We're not going to do the math. This is a podcast. We're not going to do the math. <laughs> Blackboard. We can't actually come up with the numbers, but there's a certain amount of uranium, and you can count how many decays. You can count the gamma rays. Once you've figured out, and you you know you'll be getting gamma rays of a given frequency because it's a it's a particular quantum process that involves the loss of a given amount of energy to go from U two thirty eight to 4N234 plus alpha particle plus excess energy, that's a known quantum of energy. So you'll get a gamma ray of a given frequency. You can check that. You can, count the num- you can, you can check the number of counts, the number of times you, you get a gamma ray off of that specimen. And you can count the half-life. And there are trillions and trillions and trillions and quadrillions and quintillions of, um, there's going to be something like at least 10 to the 20th uranium atoms in this little dime. So your statistics are really good. Yeah. Despite the fact that your, you know, your half-life is so insanely long. Yeah. A very small proportion of the uranium atoms are decaying, but nevertheless, a very small proportion of a nightmarishly large number is a countable number. There's a nice countable good statistics number. Right. You can do an experiment, you can determine the half-life, you can then turn around and look at rocks. Okay, so one of the great ways that we use to date rocks and old rocks, because mm-hmm. after all, U-238 has a very long half-life. U-235 has a pretty long half-life. It's hundreds of millions of years. So those are large enough fractions of the age of the Earth that you can use those to measure the ages of rocks that are very old. So mm-hmm. let's say we have a volcanic rock from the Cambrian 500 million years ago. So this volcanic rock often contains a particular mineral called zircon, not to be confused with cubic zirconium that you can find on, uh, used to be able to see sold on UHF television. Exactly. For all right. I know, you still could. Yep, probably. Um, but that's actually, zircon is the ore for zirconium, and then you can use the zirconium to make cubic zirconium. I see. A process that is not germane to the rest of this podcast, but nevertheless, (laughs) that was our commercial break for the Home Shopping Network. Thank our sponsors for not sending us any money to support this podcast. (laughs) Um, But yes, so so zircon is a fairly common mineral. It's a semi-precious gem. It's actually rather pretty. Um, You can find sand-sized grains of it. It's a very durable mineral, just like quartz. Um, But the thing about zirconium is that it is close enough in size and charge to uranium that you will get a measurable amount of uranium in this mineral. So, and that's crystal chemistry. Again, a whole subject, a beautiful, fascinating, lovely subject that uh, unfortunately I can't really see my way to cramming into this podcast. But nevertheless, trust me that it works. Uranium Uranium and the mineral zircon go together. So we use zircons for dating. Okay. Um, so you measure now, now on the other hand, <clears throat> what doesn't like to go into zircon is lead. Okay. So into thorium. All right. So you could, so the uranium atom will decay into thorium, but that's only the start of a chain. That's like something like 10 steps long. Some, something on the order of magnitude of 10 steps long, 10 mm-hmm. steps, 15, eight, something like that. So, and at the end of it is lead. So the thorium will decay into something, will decay into something, will decay into something. It spends a short while as radon, really? which 
has a very short half-life. So as long as the radon doesn't leak out of the crystal, which is kind of hard, it is in the middle of this crystal, it will eventually turn into lead. Hmm. Now, the glorious thing about this is that lead doesn't belong in this crystal, crystal chemically. Lead is 2 plus, zircon and ura zirconium and uranium are 4 plus, that's a big mismatch. Um, lead 2 plus is too big, it doesn't want to be in this hole. If it's there because of radioactive active decay, it will stay where it's been placed most of the time, um, especially if there's not been a significant amount of water leaching or something like that, that would be possible but unlikely. Um, and again, these are all hypotheses. So I'm describing this chain and uh, yes, I'm making a number of assumptions. But the thing about it is, is that we've tested these assumptions. We've, yeah. checked, we've made partial checks, which is all you can ever do in science as to whether these assumptions are reasonable. And in a lot of cases, they seem to be reasonable. Yeah. So you'll get this zircon <clears throat> dated. You'll get, you'll by counting the number of lead atoms of a given isotope, and this is the beautiful thing, you can check your work because uranium-238 decays into a certain isotope of lead. Mm -hmm. It'll have to be lead-206 or lead-210 because uh -huh. the, numbers of, you know, the numbers work out that way because radioactive decays are either beta particles, which don't change the mass number, or alpha particles, which change them by a multiple of four. So you subtract enough multiples of four, you're going to wind up with lead-206 or lead-210. It's one of those two. I think it's 206, but I'm not certain. 235, which is an odd number instead of an even number, is going to drop you down to something like lead 207 or 209. Okay. I, think mm -hmm. I could do the math in my head, but you know, I'm going to refrain. <clears throat> it's going to be an odd number. So you'll be able to track U238, and we have mass spectrometers that can do this beautifully, beautifully well. You digest your zircon, you run it through a mass spectrometer, you sort it by velocity versus charge with a magnet, is an easy experiment to do with modern technology. You can sort out how much U-238 is in the zircon, how much U-235 is in the zircon, how much of the lead end member of the U-238 chain is in the zircon, and how much of the lead 2 you know, the, the, the odd-numbered lead that's the end point of U-235 is in the zircon. In fact, the zircon could have incorporated some thorium to start with, so you could actually have three things. So you could have three different isotopic systems inside this given crystal that you could check. And if you get, so if you get concordant ages, if the ages match, and that's an oversimplification of the process, of course, again, we can't go through the whole math of it in the podcast, um, but you get self-checking numbers. If the numbers don't come out, you say, ah, oh, okay. You look around in the rock and try to start uh, determining what might have screwed up the system. Maybe some of the lead has been removed somehow. That can happen. Yeah. You look for right. evidence of hot water altering the rock, things like that. Right. Um, which of course, so, so that's the thing. So there's, if you're, first of all, so if you talk to a young earth creationist, as I've done very rarely, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> what, what do they think you're dating things with? They think you're dating things with carbon-14. It's usually not <laughs> that that's a that's a very short-lived isotopic system and it's a harder one to check um, because carbon 14 is a single once it turns into I believe it turns into nitrogen 14 I believe it emits a beta particle and turns into nitrogen 14 which is a much nicer much happier uh, 
isotope, and of course nitrogen-14, you know, a bit of organic matter, is going to find its way back out in the atmosphere. And not only that, it's the normal isotope of nitrogen, if memory serves. So you'd find it as contamination if you're testing for it. You can't really test for it. Um, so that's a much shakier isotopic system. Uh, you also are tied to certain models of how much carbon-14 was being generated in the upper atmosphere at time X, which is not necessarily constant. It varies with the activity of the sun. So you'll get a whole school of criticism of carbon-14, which, of course, the scientists doing this are also criticizing their own work is part of the problem. Um, but if you, if you meet a young Earth creationist talking about carbon-14, they're probably barking up the wrong tree for the most part because we don't use that isotopic system for much in geology. Okay. Sure. We don't care. It's like 5,000 some years. 5,000 some years. I want to date this rock that's 100 million years old. That's useless to me. That is completely, I, there's no more carbon-14 left. Even with modern equipment, I cannot find the residual two to the negative blah, 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 power of, you know, the original amount of carbon-14. That might actually be to the point where the last atom of it has decayed. Right. So you can't use that system. You use other systems. Um, and there are many other systems. So mm -hmm. uranium lead was one of the very first, because of course people realized uranium was radioactive. Um, so they, they immediately, attention immediately centered on that. But over the years, we found out that potassium is radioactive. Potassium-40 mm -hmm. is radioactive. It's mm -hmm. got a weird decay scheme where part of it decays to calcium-40 and part of it decays to argon-40. Got argon trapped in a rock, it didn't want to be there to start with. <laughs> so if you can get the argon out of the rock, you can count it. So there are forms of argon dating, potassium argon dating. Um, there are there's still other ones. There's samarium neodymium. That's a that's a popular one. Um, and every year anymore, every few years, you find you know you go to a conference and you'll hear about a new isotopic system being used. Um, Different minerals store different elements. They all have a different sort of taste for what in the periodic table they like to incorporate. And different, you know, isotopes of those are radioactive, and you can use those for dating. So mm -hmm. it's a it's a massively self-correcting system because we have all we can we can corroborate. Right. We get into arguments like we do. For example, there is an argument in the literature about whether the uh, Martian meteorites called the Shergatites, which is actually the most common version of them. So pieces of Mars. Uh -huh. As far as we know, an asteroid or one or more asteroids struck Mars, ejected these things, and they drifted across interplanetary space, and by chance, a few of them have landed on Earth, and by chance, we have actually been able to collect a few of them by sending people like Guy Consolano down to Antarctica on snowmobiles to go collect them. Gotcha. Which is, you know, basic, which is camping in Antarctica for six weeks to go collect meteorites is definitely a uh, giving yourself for science, for sure. Indeed. So, so there's a, so there's a contra controversy in that literature about most of the isotopic systems tell you that those rocks are only a few hundred million years old, which is really exciting because Mars should be, it's much smaller than Earth. It should be cold and dead and not really, at least to a crude first order approximation, it shouldn't be volcanic anymore. It should basically have shut down. Interesting. The yeah. Fact that that's probably not the case. And there are and there are other uh, rocks, as far as I know, the the knocklights and the chassignites, having written 
papers about the Chazzy Knights and Knocklights. I don't believe people have the same level of debate about them. I think the isotopes have since come out. But for the Shergatites, at least some of them, people doing uranium lead dating are trying to argue there are there is at least one group trying to argue that they are as old as Mars. They're four and a half billion years old. Oh. Um, and everyone else working on other isotopic systems says, no, this one's 100 million, this one's 300 million, this one's 800 million, whatever. You know, again, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a Shergatite, Shergatite guy, and I'm not, uh, it's been a few years since I've read that literature anyway. So, so, but that's the thing. In science, we recognize controversies, and we bracket that off and say, that's, that's a controversy. There, the data are at least somewhat, I mean, and people, scientists are human, and certainly I've heard, you know, in the hallways, people rolling their eyes, seen, seen and heard people rolling their eyes and discarding the group that works on uranium and let us kooks. Okay, but at least it's still a recognized, this is, this is still a controversy, as opposed to a great many other problems where there is, it's all consistent. The data is all consistent. Uh, you know, bring us back to the relative dating. We, you know, you go back and you do absolute dating. So absolute dating, of course, depends on you having rocks that you can't, and minerals, mineral grains or whole rocks, one or the other, that it makes sense to apply this dating scheme to. So just like with biostratigraphy, using life stratigraphy, who didn't bother last time. So this is the other objection to biostratigraphy, of course, is that it never gave you a, a scale of years. Absolute dating promises to give you a scale of years. Unfortunately, absolute dating is restricted to types of rocks that are less common and not as easy to fit into the stratigraphic sequence. Your best bet with absolute dating is to get things like <laughs> super eruptions. Those are great. Um, so Yellowstone. So you're aware of the super volcano under Yellowstone. Okay, right. You've, you've dimly heard about that. that, is, that is yes, I have. Yes, yes. The national consciousness. So there yeah, are there been at least three eruptions from the vicinity of Yellowstone National Park, right. underneath what's now Yellowstone National Park, where a bunch of really sticky, granitic-ish magma has blown itself out and become this um, massive, massive set of eruptions. So you can find the ash from Canada down to the Gulf of Mexico and as far oh, east as, I don't know, I think Indiana. Um, that's great. <laughs> it's not great. It's great though. <laughs> because that spews a bunch of the zircon. You find some zircon in that rock, um, among other things. You can find you can find a bunch of potassium bearing minerals in that rock. Those are actually much more common. You can so that's a great marker layer spread out over a big geographic area right and you can find that and you can work from that rock which you can radiometrically date to this age and you can work your way up to a, the next marker bed however many you know hundred feet in the stratigraphic column and you can observe okay and in between this marker bed and that marker bed let's say at 96 million and 91 million I see this shale with these fossils and this limestone with these fossils and this shale with these fossils. Right. Now I have an absolute date. I have a constraint. I have a tight constraint on the ages of those particular index fossils, which I can now take and turn to the rest of the world and say, okay, I now know 
that these rocks are this age, this particular late Cretaceous, you know, I already knew it was in the Cretaceous, but now I know it's 91 to 96 million years old. Right. We're right. pretty confident that it's 91 to 96 million years old. And so you can, so you can work from, so it's, it's a, it's a big interlocking system. And so while in some sense, the evidence is always indirect, like why I would say that this particular rock in Indiana is 330 million years old. Right. Um, nevertheless, the interlocking nature of it is also a way of checking, you know, do these dates make sense? Have I made a mistake? There have certainly been occasions in the literature where people's, um, there have been occasions in the literature where people's biostratigraphy and they're absolutely dating, or at least their first cut at them both, got into conflict. And the right. thing about this is the way science works is not, it's not a political machine sweeping contradictions under the rug. It's right. like, oh, look, there's a problem here. Let's throw 15 graduate students at it. Right. Let's resolve the conflict. Let's find yes. out what the problem is. Yes. Because we're confident there's an answer. Yes. So, so that's, um, gosh, we didn't even get to the next topic, Bill. <laughs> we, did, we did an episode on relative dating and we've done an, an episode on absolute dating. We haven't even gotten to the whole, uh, uh, the, the spiritualism of geology that I wanted to talk about, you know, oh, well, that, looking at these fantastically large numbers and the age of the earth and, and the, just the number of worlds that have gone by, right. You know, yes. the world of the mid Silurian period and all of the strange beasties that were alive then, what the continents looked like then. And, you know, marvel at marvel at all of that um but that i guess we'll have to leave to another another episode well and that's okay because uh i've already been uh taking notes based on what you've been saying that kind of do uh segue into that uh i was just noting how much uh, you know um we've been talking uh about what i would call interdisciplinarity uh, we, uh, just, just your discussion of how we moved from a more relativist approach to a more absolute approach, um, revealed, uh, you know, we, we wound up discussing things like, uh, metallurgy and, uh, expertise in radiation, uh, uh mathematics, uh, a, a, a number of different fields have come up. Uh, in which, uh, frankly, I'm sorry, dear listener. I, exactly. I do about crystal chemistry. Exactly. 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 So, uh, what what I find interesting is that there's a net, or at least there is among many people over many periods of time, uh, this tendency to look for absolute facts um, uh, by keeping things simple. Uh, by uh, by resorting to what you what you called uh, uh, biblical m minimalism, etc. Yeah, yeah. But uh, is which it is only one form of minimalism? It, okay, yes, and uh, right. People uh, people tend toward minimalism, uh, especially in this age when I when I think that you know, uh, what I call uh, information overload or information inflation uh, is is really the, the order of the day thanks to technology, etc. We naturally try to condense it all and minimal, uh, min minimize the complexity of it in our own minds, at least with with simple labels, etc. But I think the point that the point that I'm I'm drawing from this 
is that um, uh, the 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 real approach to more sophisticated knowledge and more absolute facts uh, as the basis for complex reasoning and uh, better analysis is is really a course that takes us away from the minimalist approach, either scriptural or otherwise, and toward a real uh, acceptance of interdisciplinarity and a, a, a willingness to, to learn from different fields, different assessments, uh, to build in the, the, the laws and understandings that came from earlier, more basic uh, views, but to be open to all of this new information, which of course one might say is the purpose of uh, university learning and, and, the, and, and hopefully the direction that society is, is uh, uh, going in, but um, not necessarily, and right, right. So uh, it when wouldn't we say, work for it to be more yeah. oriented in that direction. Yes. What does that require in spades? I'm thinking as you're speaking here, it requires intellectual humility in spades. Well said. Yes. It requires dump truck loads of it. Yes. Yes. So that's a very good point, and. Uh, um, uh, as as your uh, a blueprint for our uh, narrative arc, as it were, uh, uh, suggests, uh, we're we're going to go into a discussion of what can only be called awe, which is also uh, right inseparable from uh, intellectual humility, right, and, and is also uh, inseparable from that sense of faith and. Uh, uh, you know values that are not just based on you know uh, labels and 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 simplistic de definitions. So uh, I, I think that this was a very valuable kind of uh, transitional episode that will lead toward that discussion. So why don't we uh, close this one uh, right now and uh, plan for a, a next uh, episode soon and welcome our listeners to to join us at that time. In the meantime, I thank you very much, Paul. I, I, it was very, uh, very helpful. And I, I mean, I'm enjoying this uh, uh, tracing of the, uh, of the arc. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you along for the ride. And that was, ah, thank you. It's fun. Yes. Thank you. Thank you listeners. More next time.